do. Hello. I do so enjoy the uh, the misunderstanding of your political opponents. Like the things that people say that they believe about their opponents, like these caricatures that they construct in their mind of who their political adversary is and why they believe what they believe and what they believe. I remember having this discussion. There was a, uh, when I was up in Asheville at the time, years ago, there was a, one of the sister stations was a progressive talk station. And uh, it, at, at one point it was literally just like the replay of two shows over and over and over again. I'm not kidding. But one of, uh, one of the uh, people that they had on staff there, he was a, literally a fabulist. He would, he would make up stories and stuff. And um, I think his parents had a lot of money or something. And then he, he, he was a writer uh, and he would make up these stories. And so he got, a, he got this on-air gig. And I would have discussions with him in the hallway. And, uh, man, he didn't know anything about conservatism. <laughs> I mean, he knew nothing. Uh, Remember, I asked him one time, like, who who is the Reagan coalition? Like, who made up the Reagan coalition? He had no idea. And I'm like, I don't know. I think that would be pretty important. If you're trying to understand, you know, the rise of Donald Trump in 2015, 2016, I think it was pretty important to know, like, who the different kind of factions inside the Republican Party were and why they were successful and why they were kind of breaking apart and he didn't know that, but he had all sorts of crazy ideas about why people believed the things they do on the right. It's pretty, it's, it was pretty instructive when you listen to them speak. And that's why, like, I'm fascinated with, you know, Dean's email to me yesterday here that I just now read. I apologize for not getting around to it. I don't know why the email didn't load, but, um, like he makes also he makes a bunch of assumptions here about like uh, Second Amendment stuff. I mean, kind of like I make an assumption about Dean when I see that he's got an AOL.com handle. Like I make assumptions about you. You got the AOL thing. It's kind of like oh, you know, like because that's old school right there. That is really really old school. Like for kids, you may not even know this. They used to send like in order to get online, they sent out CDs. Yeah, yeah. You would just be at home and all of a sudden, oh, look at that. You get your mail delivered and there's a disc in your mail. And then you put this thing into your computer and that's how you would get online. And by online, I mean a chat room like that. that that's what you got. You, oh, hey, I'm Pete. I'm in Charlotte. And oh, hey, Pete. Okay, bye. Like And that was the Internet. That was my re- recollection of it. Anyway, his belief here is that there's no other reason for anybody to carry a gun except if you are Clint Eastwood or Arnold, I guess, the Terminator here, because he says, I'll be back. And so those two characters, in Dean's mind, that's why conservatives carry firearms. That's it. There's no other reason. They think they're Clint Eastwood. They think they're the Terminator. Isn't that interesting? Think about, I mean, just think for a moment what it would take, how you get there logically, right? How you would have to, like the series of of jumps, leaps that you have to make from, from one idea to the next in order to get to a point where you honestly believe or are at least compelled to write into me 
a talk show host, knowing that I'm going to read this email at some point and just drag the bejeebus out of you for being ignorant, right? Like, but you feel so confident in this idea that you feel the need to put it down pen to paper or uh, I guess text to email and, uh, and send it along to me from your AOL account. <laughs> and you want me to read this and you want me to tell other people this thing that you think is what? That's the thing I don't understand either. Like, why Carrie? Do you really not know why he said? So for folks who didn't hear the, the reading of the email, he said, would Clint Eastwood hide his gun? Because I was talking about concealed carry versus open carry. And it's not ideal, I don't believe. I don't think you win converts to the cause by open carrying. I don't think it's a wise idea in most cases, in virtually all cases. I'm not saying that it's never uh, appropriate. I'm sure there are some cases or whatever. I choose not to. I wouldn't do that. And I think it makes people uneasy. And I don't think it actually converts anybody to your view, right? I think most people who are terrified of guns, um, like irrationally so, they're not going to be convinced to now be okay with them because they saw you walking around with one, okay? It also puts you at a strategic disadvantage. Just tactically speaking, now if I am a bad guy, I know who to go after first. And I know that I can kind of maybe walk up behind you, position myself in the appropriate way and take it from you. And then thereby disarming you. And now I am armed. See, so like it just it, it to me, the juice isn't worth the squeeze on that. Um, and so he's saying, well, what would Clint Eastwood hide his gun? Would Arnold? I'll be back with his gun in his pocket. Why carry? So am I to believe that Dean seriously does not understand the rationale for concealed carry? Which, by the way, I did get an email yesterday about this uh, topic as well. Somebody asking, um, why does it take so long to get a concealed carry in Mecklenburg County? Well, the sheriff doesn't want people to conceal carry. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. It's COVID. Sorry, yeah. It was totally COVID. That's why. COVID is the reason why. Um, and, there, and there are a lot of people that want, uh, that want concealed carry, uh, concealed handgun permits in Mecklenburg County now. Yeah, the numbers were going up. It's kind of amazing. As crime goes up, people want guns. See if Dean could make that connection, why that might be the case. As crime goes up, people want more guns. Legal. They want to go legal. They want to legally be able to carry a concealed weapon. See if you can connect those dots. (laughs) Right? I mean, this is obvious to everybody. The reason why people conceal carry, Dean, is... For self-protection. There's a whole philosophy, actually, about wolves and sheep and sheepdogs. Maybe one day I'll get into it. Oh, heck, I'll do it right now. It's uh, it, it, The guy, I forget his name, is Killology is the name of the, uh, the book, I believe. Uh, and he talks about you've got uh, uh, wolves. These are the criminals, right? They're just bad dudes. And then you got sheep, and that's the vast majority of people. And this is not an insult. The vast majority of people are productive members of society, right? They're growing lots of wool and uh, they don't hurt anybody, right? They're, they're peaceful. They're, they're good people. And then you've got sheep dogs. And these are the people that uh, kind of scare the sheep because they look a lot like the wolves and they bark at all the noises in the night around the perimeter and that sort of thing. But the sheep dogs are there to protect the sheep. 
Right? And if you don't want to be a sheepdog, that's fine. But just recognize that you are relying on the sheepdogs. Because the sheep that forget that they're relying on the sheepdogs for protection end up being devoured by the wolves. That's it. That's that's the idea. That's what News Talk 1110, 99.3 WBT. Pete Callender here, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. An anti-Israel reverend who preached at President Joe Biden's inaugural prayer services demanding a White House meeting to push the administration to abolish the filibuster. Reverend William Barber, North Carolina's own. We're so proud of William Barber. Um who was arrested alongside Jesse Jackson during an anti-filibuster protest earlier this year, which I know you're like, oh, he got arrested. Like, this is kind of his jam, right? Reverend Barber, he goes to political places and he gets himself arrested and he gets what they call earned media. He gets coverage. And uh, then he parlays that into a demand to meet with the target of his ire. He did it with the uh, the General Assembly, the Republican leadership, uh, who I think at one point, I think they may have met with him. It's been a decade. I don't recall, but um, you know, they were. De- he was demanding. At one point, they ran the numbers on his demand. They actually took his demand seriously, which is well, hilarity ensued. Um, the price tag on the thing, I think, was somewhere in the like. Uh, what is it like? Like $50 billion, $100 billion, something like that. I mean, it was so far above the annual spending in the entire state. Their list of demands, the uh, that the Moral Monday movement, the Mo-Mo-Mo, as I called it, um, they were uh, they were demanding and they were marching and all this stuff. And, and honestly, I've talked about the, the Mo-Mo before. Um, they were essentially a surrogate for the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party was so riddled with corruption. Uh, they had been kicked out of power. They, uh, they lost their legislative majority. Republicans had a supermajority. Their, uh, their state party was collapsing. At one point, they almost lost their headquarters building in Raleigh. They had multiple executive directors resign in disgrace after uh, sexual harassment allegations and the like. Uh, like, back to back, it was really embarrassing. And so the party was just circling the drain. And... In steps the Momo, the Moral Mondayers, right? And he did, and the Moral Monday movement did what the Democratic Party could not because there just wasn't leadership available to do it. So, uh, and look, kudos to him. He parlayed that into the uh, uh, into a gig nationally. I think he got, uh, Monica, I think, wrote in, yeah, he got a genius award. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He got a genius grant. That's what they call them. They give them to smart people. Yeah, I'm, I think so. That I'm never, I'm never going to get one. No, that's why. Um, so yeah, he got like some. Uh, he got a genius grant, which is basically just, hey, you're a leftist. Here's a bunch of money. And uh, right now he's running the uh, poor people's campaign, which that's why he needed the grant exactly because the poor. I mean, you think you're going to get rich running the poor people's campaign? Well, actually, yes, he is, but that's because George Soros is funding it, so he's getting paid. 
I mean, it's not like he's not going to be poor. All right. Um, he says in a letter to Joe Biden that uh, he wants to help the president pass the three and a half trillion dollar spending package being debated in Congress. And that's why he requires a sit down meeting with the president. And uh, he thinks he has a pretty good shot here. I mean, Joe Biden, after all, did compare him to Martin Luther King Jr. Now, Barber also has a pretty long record of controversial statements attacking the Jewish state. For example, in 2018, he called Israel an apartheid state. He said the notion that Israel was created as a response to the murder of millions of Jews during the Holocaust was a lie. Um he had said at the time, quote, it was never just purely about righting the terrible wrongs of the Holocaust. So that's good to know. He's not a straight-up Holocaust denier here. Uh, but he said that uh, it was about expanding a global empire. So oh, 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 right up on the border of the it's the Jews argument. During the same speech, Barber said the 2016 presidential election was rigged. <gasps> no. Yeah, apparently so. This was actually a pretty popular opinion. Up until about a minute ago. Yeah, yeah, there were a lot of Democrats that thought, oh, here you go. I actually pulled this soundbite. Um, yeah, here we go. This is Terry McAuliffe. He's running for governor again up in Virginia. And he was on some TV program, and they were uh, asking him some questions. And kudos to this uh, anchor reporter. I don't know her name, uh, but she asked Terry McAuliffe some pretty tough questions. And his answers are mm, not impressive. But in 2004... Well, hang on a second. I just looked at the clock. So let me save this audio clip for after the news. And I will just give you the highlight here real quick. At the time, let's be very clear, I wasn't running for governor. So that's why he called previous elections rigged and stole it. Because he wasn't running for governor then. So that's legit. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Joining me now is Becky Gray. She's Senior Vice President at the John Locke Foundation. You can read her work and her colleagues at carolinajournal.com. Hey, Becky, how are you? I'm doing great, Pete. Happy Friday. Yes, indeed. So, uh, big news, I think, right? The uh, I don't know if he has si- he hasn't signed it yet, right? The energy bill. But he put out a statement, the governor did, expressing support for the energy bill uh, as it worked its way through the legislature. So I take that as a good sign. That's a very good sign, yeah. And so this, this has been an interesting trajectory on this. The bill passed this week, both the House and the Senate, with final votes that were needed there, and it went over to the governor's office by special messenger, which just kind of speeds things up a little bit. Um, Pete, would not surprise me if we didn't get the governor signing that bill this afternoon. He has indicated as the bill has moved through the General Assembly, and particularly this latest version that came out of the Senate, that he was supportive of it. And, you know, that's always a good sign when we see that. The vote in the Senate, I think, was unanimous. So all of the Democrats agreed with the Republicans on that. And then in the 
House, there were just a handful of members who voted against it. Most of them were Republicans, as I recall. So it, it goes to him with strong Democratic support coming out, and, and I believe a good consensus bill in the end. So what I recall also, uh, there were a lot of Democrats that were accusing Republicans of creating this plan in secret with all the lobbyists and uh, casting aspersions on them for uh, for doing so. This was during the confirmation of one of Cooper's uh, nominees for, uh, I forget what position it was. Well, it was it was the secretary of the Department of Environmental Quality. Right. So, you know, has to do a lot, you know, with this energy and renewable energy and the whole discussion of climate change and, you know, his um, his efforts to reduce the carbon emissions, which, of course, is something that we're hearing nationally and even internationally. And, you know, Pete, this is one of those. And I guess the reason why this is this is news is because there is consensus on an energy bill and talk about the process. Um, you know, you're exactly right, and I'm glad you brought that up. This has been not just weeks in the making, not just even this session, but this is one of those where they had a big stakeholders group, and you've got 50, 60 people that are brought together that represent the renewable energy, solar energy, wind energy, Duke energy, you know, every factor that you can think of that these stakeholders get into a room and work for months on coming up with something when in the end it's all of them get something in this bill and present that to the General Assembly, say, hey, here's our energy bill. Don't mess with it. If you pull anything out of it, the whole thing will collapse. So this is what you've got. That went to the General Assembly. The House made some changes to it. It was about a 50-page bill coming out of the House went over to the Senate. One of the first things that Senator Paul Newton did is he held a public hearing and allowed people to come in and express concerns or, or whether they, they liked it just like it was. And the overall message, I, I actually testified at that committee, the overall message was there were a lot of problems with it. Nobody was happy with it. So he kind of struck everything out of it, went back to square one, got input, but really put together a bill that is good policy rather than a consensus of all the different special interests and stakeholders in the bill. So it's it's been an interesting process, and it's been an interesting solution to it. And that's why I say I think the governor's going to sign it because I think even you know even the governor didn't agree with everything that this big stakeholder group had put together. And Pete, the, the reason why that matters to you and I um, is that in that stakeholder meeting there was no there there were no ratepayers represented. Mm-hmm. There were no taxpayers represented. You know, it was just all the big players came together, said, this is what you're going to get, presented it to us. This bill that is on it on the governor's desk really takes into consideration the, the, the driving force behind this bill now is low-cost, most reliable energy sources. That's what, that's what the solution to North Carolina's energy needs are going to be moving forward. Again, least cost, most reliable. And I think that's a good thing for North Carolinians. Uh, Real quick, in about a minute, what is a regulatory sandbox and why did we need legislation? Uh, This is a great bill. It's House Bill 624. And what this does is it applies to the insurance and the financial technology companies. 
and it just allows them a sandbox, if you will, with fewer regulations. So these are the up-and-coming, really innovative companies, the ideas that are out there, and it just gives them a little bit of break from the highly regulated burdens that are put on, and again, this is for the insurance and the financial technology company, um, but it's open to innovation and entrepreneurship, gives them a break so that they can go in, make investments, um, come up with new and innovative ideas, and you know, hopefully a lot of these will move forward. Um, it's House Bill 624, if folks are interested in it, also sitting on the governor's desk, and so we'll be watching over the next 10 days to see if he signs this into law as a, a, I'm not really an entrepreneur, but I certainly support entrepreneurship. I think innovation is the key to solving a lot of the problems that we face. And um, so this, this again, is a really good thing for Just North makes, Carolina. Yeah, it makes it easier for them to experiment. Uh, yeah. Becky, thanks so much for your time. As always, have a great weekend. We appreciate you. Pete, always good to see you. Have a great weekend. All right, that is Becky Gray. She is a Senior Vice President at the John Locke Foundation, carolinajournal.com and johnlocke.org. That's fine young cannibals. Um, that one's for the kids. So I do have the audio of Terry McAuliffe. I will play that and circle back, Jen Psaki style, to Reverend Barber. Uh but I am kind of curious. We mentioned the energy bill, and so now I've just I've got to hear what this is. Hello, Bill. Welcome to the show. What's going on? Thank you very much. I I believe that the uh, the people that want everything electric and all that uh, they don't really understand what's going on. What's going on is uh, the world that was it was created before all the industrialization. There was a lot more chlorophyll all over the world. Chlorophyll absorbs carbon dioxide and creates oxygen, and it creates wood mm-hmm. or fiber, which can be used to make things like paper bags instead of plastic. Mm-hmm. And also, the, the forest itself has a cooling effect. Mm-hmm. Just like if you go over near water, a big bottle of water, it's cooler in the summer than the land a mile inland. It's that simple. It's the water evaporating, turning into a gas that causes cooling. A forest does the same thing. The green leaves give off moisture, which cause a cooling of the forest. You go out in any desert area, and it's uh, way hotter than if you walk into some forest land nearby. You can even go out west and see this, where... uh, the desert is 120 degrees, yeah. and you well, the day. a little elevation, and there's greenery growing everywhere, and maybe it's only 85 degrees. Mm. You can even see it in Tennessee in the mountains, yeah. the difference between when you're down in the city. and up. So oh. they're doing the, exactly the wrong thing. Why, they're well, destroying the forest to put in more solar panels, which is totally stupid. Right. Well, so why nothing for cooling and takes up land to grow food and fiber to make things out of. Right. It creates so, jobs and reforestation is that what we should be heading for for all the basic things I talked about. So, Harry, but we're hang on, Bill. trying to destroy Bill. this. All right, Bill, Harry, so a couple of things. Number one, um, do you think America has more trees now than it did, say, 100 years ago? 
Oh, it may, but uh, the, the old forests don't produce much oxygen. We need to reforest. We need to cut down trees and use them and plant new trees. The young trees create a lot of oxygen. Old forests well, that would create be, very little right, right, and but, support but, very little life. All right. So, but that would that that would but that would be the answer to my question when I said, "Do you think there are more trees now than a hundred years ago?" And you said. Maybe so, but those would be younger trees. Those would be newer forests because it's within a yeah. hundred years. So, yeah, you, you have. So to it sounds like that's down trees and reforestate. Right. Well, if there you are more plant. trees now than there were a hundred years ago, then it seems like then we're, we as a nation are already doing that. No. Well, old forests do not. It's not what grow I was, very much. It's not what I'm, that's not what I was saying. We're if we have more trees now than we did then that means that that's reforestation, right? We've got more trees now than we did, so you've got oh, newer... I'm not, sure, I'm not sure that's true. What's true? I, I think we don't have as much chlorophyll absorbing carbon dioxide as we did 50 years ago, even. 50 years ago? Yeah. Right. Now, look, look, I'll give you an example. The Amazon forest was. Oh, I, I understand the concept, Bill. Bill, I understand. Uh, Bill, I, I completely understand the concept. There's. I've done interviews actually and topics with people promoting this very idea about greening the planet with more CO2. That this is actually like food for trees and plants, and we actually have gotten like the the, the trees grow bigger, faster. The the greenery grows bigger and faster because there's more CO2 for them to gobble up, right? Because they that's what they breathe in, right? Well, they they keep it from getting too high. They if you keep do away it from with getting the too greenery, high. there's nothing to change CO two to oxygen and to cool the planet. It's that simple, right? But so you realize though. But all right. So just for the record, America now does have more trees now than it had a century ago. I don't know. I, I'm telling you, we we do. I know the Amazon does not. Well, that's I'm, I can I cannot I cannot reforest the Amazon. Okay, uh, uh, we're America. Know you know, but I mean, like we're talking about energy policy in North Carolina and in America, and we now have more trees than we had a century ago, which makes sense too if you think about it. Like, uh, if you've ever gone up to like Mount Mitchell or something in North Carolina, you see the um, the, uh, the the photos. I mean. The, the Appalachians were just completely devastated, right? Just everything just cut down uh, over, you know, a century ago, right? So, like, all of the timber was was harvested out of those mountains. So, not all of it, but almost all of it. And so you've got a lot of reforestation efforts that have occurred over the last century, and we have more trees now. This is good news. So we can do that. So I, I'm not sure... I'm not. I, I'm not sure that the argument holds water. I can't... I mean, I can't set policy for the Amazon... I'm just telling you worldwide that there are less, there's, there's less chlorophyll. Okay. And that's the main reason why the CO2 levels are increasing. Right. Because there's no trees to absorb them and greenery. All right. They're putting out solar panels in fields instead of planting crops that form chlorophyll. Okay. So. It's that simple. Oh, I, I understand that. Um, you called, though, and said that the energy bill is deficient it's ignorant i think is what you told ryan yeah so why absolutely wh because what because there's a solar panel component there that's part of it so any solar panel component 
is to be rejected? Well, we're, we're only uh, solar panels is the only thing that's viable, of course. But the solar panels, my brother lives in a panhandle of Florida, and he says that those solar panel fields uh, in a big windstorm, they're totally destroyed. You never hear about it. Okay. They don't want to report that. All right. I, I don't know if that's responsive, but all right. I appreciate the call, Bill. I'm sure I... I'm sure I followed the plot there, but um, thanks for the call.